The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It had been eight or nine months into this, and, you know, no word, no nothing. And I had called my cousin and asked her, I said, hey, so what's the skinny on this? What's going on? And she says, his attorney says we can't talk about it. And I was like, it's not going to be something shady, is it? I said, I'm not trying to infer that, you know, you guys are shady. I'm just saying, you know, I mean, it's not like he can put that on someone else. It just doesn't compute. It's the way he did what he did when he had so many other options. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. We had so many technical difficulties to get us here, and I'm glad that we finally made it. And we're just going to really cross our fingers that nothing else happens. Yeah, we were going to record this yesterday, and then one thing after another occurred, and we just took it as a sign. We're like, we should stop here and just pretend today never happened, and we'll try again tomorrow. So here we are. Here we are. I checked if Mercury was in retrograde. It, in fact, is not. Not that I believe in any of that, but there's really no excuse for any of this. So we're just going to get into it, cross our fingers, and hope for the best. Do you want to know what day it is today? Please tell me exactly what day it is. So there's a few days. Um, it is International Top Spinning Day. Like, you know, the top in... Um, the Matrix? Yeah. And uh, what the fuck is Wait, that? Is it even the Matrix? Or is it... No, the Leo, Leo DiCaprio movie. I'm thinking um, it's the Inception. Oh, no. Inception. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Wow. Sorry to everybody. That's screaming. actually what I was thinking of when I said yeah. the Matrix. I'm sure everybody is like, you freaking idiots. It's also National Fossil Day, which is very exciting. Okay. National Gumbo Day and National Pet Obesity Awareness Day. So you know what? Make sure that you're feeding your pets some healthy meals. And taking them on some nice long walks. A nice long walk. Every dog loves a walk, right? That's right. All right. Well, I think that that is enough of that. We're going to jump right into this case. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. So for better or for worse, we usually trust that the values our parents try to instill in us are in our own best interests. Of course, there's always going to be those generational differences, and some parents are going to be more conservative than others in the examples they want to set for their kids. When you look back, 
One of these almost universal concepts is that of honoring my mother and father. And it sounds fundamentally like something primarily associated with religious doctrine, but it's not limited solely to religious communities. Because whether you come from a religious background or not, our parents' belief systems about the broader world shape ours. They're the very first lessons our impressionable young minds absorb as a blueprint for making our way in the world. But if your home environment is one where abuse and domestic violence are occurring, this can make things much more complex. And no child wants to antagonize their caregivers in any way, shape, or form. And the hypervigilance abuse cultivates means children live in constant fear of the repercussions for any perceived disobedience. Some abused children don't dare flout their parents' ultra-conservative ideology even into adulthood for fear of the consequences, like being ostracized by them. But the question is, how far would you go to adhere to the word of your parents, even if it meant doing the unthinkable? So we begin today's case on August 18th of 2020. This was around six months into the pandemic, and we had no idea just how profoundly COVID would go on to affect the lives of millions of people in the world, and it still is affecting us today. So the apocalyptic bad news continued as the state of emergency was declared in California, where 27 wildfires burned across the state amid a continuing heat wave. Ronald Washington and Carl Jordan Jr. were charged with murder in connection to the killing of Run DMC's Jam Master Jay, who was shot and killed in a Queens recording studio 18 years earlier in 2002. And on the pop charts, Cardi B was slang with WAP, featuring Megan Thee Stallion, and at Number three, Blinding Lights by the Weekend was enjoying its 37th week in the charts. And many movie theaters had been dark for about five months, but some were about to open. The top two grossing movies were the SpongeBob movie and Unhinged, starring Russell Crowe. And the setting for today's case is Crawfordsville, Indiana. Situated in west central Indiana in Montgomery County, the city of around 16,000 people is located about 50 miles northwest of Indianapolis. And Crawfordsville is home to the Miami and Shawnee First Nations people. It was also the birthplace of Civil War Major General, politician, and ambassador Lou Wallace, who is perhaps best known as the author of Ben-Hur. The city and surrounds is known for agriculture, including corn crops and pig and dairy farming. But many Crawfordsville residents are also employed in the local printing and bookbinding industry. Crawfordsville is also known for its annual three-day strawberry festival every June. And our first three for today's story is named Roy. Roy was born in San Bernardino and grew up in a bunch of places aside from California, including Washington and as far away as the UK. And despite all of the moving around, Roy's extended family is from the Kankakee and Coal City areas of Illinois. And Roy, growing up, had a cousin named Michael, and he was known as Mike. He was born in March of 1976, along with his parents and sister Audrey. And cousin Mike lived on a property with two homes. So one was for their family of four, and the other was for Mike's grandmother, who had a complicated relationship with her son, who is Mike's dad. Okay, so this is all Roy's family, his cousins, his shared grandmother, and his uncle. And just so you all know, as our story unfolds, we're going to be changing the names of several of the people involved who aren't directly involved in any of the the legal cases. So anyways, we're going to call Roy's uncle Aaron. So Aaron owned the land and had built the home for Mike's grandmother. But when he got pissed off with her, he'd do things like charge her rent. 
So there's some dysfunction going on in this family here. Because this is his own mother that we're talking about, right? So off the bat, we're, we're seeing some tension. Right. And Mike wasn't really a happy kid. And as far as Roy can remember, his cousin never even smiled that much. Mike has never seemed happy. I've rarely seen him smile. I used to see him smile when he was a kid once in a while, but not very often. I mean, the environment he grew up in, there was never anything to smile about. You know, the happiest he was was when there were, you know, his cousins would come over and play. I mean, and, and that was it. Mike was a hard shell to crack, and I, I don't think anyone ever got that close to him. He's always been a real difficult read. So it's not hard to see why Cousin Mike was withdrawn. He, his sister Audrey, and their mom Sandy were living a pretty miserable life under the thumb of their dad. At the same time as being excessively controlling, he had no interest in parenting and basically washed his hands of the kids unless it was about punishing them. And Roy felt bad for his cousin and for their entire family, frankly. Growing up, I don't know. I was pretty indifferent towards him. I mean, my brother and I kind of felt sorry for him more than anything. To Roy, the relationship between his aunt and uncle and their marriage was anything but equal. His uncle completely dominated the family. Mike's father was so controlling that whatever he said was basically law. And one of the things he was very staunch about was nobody in his family getting divorced under any circumstances. And he wasn't particularly religious or anything. It was just one of these values that he was very militant about, despite other people's choices literally having no effect on his life whatsoever. Right. And the lesson that Mike's dad, Roy's uncle, was teaching the kids in his family here seems like a pretty unusual hill to want to die on, especially if it's not religious. But from a developmental psychological perspective, by the time Mike would have been around seven years old it's likely that he would have formed this as a core belief, something he considered an absolute truth. Once you get married, you don't get divorced. And before we continue on with our story, we're going to explain a psychological concept which describes how we form our beliefs as children. In cognitive developmental terms, our mental framework about how the world works is called a schema. And we develop lots of different schemas during our childhood and in terms of interpersonal relationships. They really help us understand the broad rules around what relationships should look like as we get older. However, if we grow up in a family whose rules about relationships are inconsistent with how the general world around us thinks, like Mike, this can really cause problems. Because as adults, our brains keep trying to adhere to those rules despite them no longer really applying. Right. And one of the challenges with schemas is that we don't always consciously realize that we have them. So looking at Mike's case in particular, he wouldn't even think to question his dad's views on divorce and simply carried this belief along with him into his adulthood. But schemas, they're not always bad. They can be helpful. But if we grow up in dysfunctional homes where we don't have secure emotional bonds with our caregivers, we can develop something called emotional deprivation schemas. And these incorporate our beliefs about relationships negatively. And if we carry this into adulthood, we can have unrealistic expectations. We can be hypercritical and even aggressive towards our partners. And obviously, there's a spectrum with all this. This is all super nuanced. But, you know, it helps give some context into what we'll be talking about today. All right. So getting back to our story, even though Mike was family, Roy's mom was wary about the kids spending too much time together. 
he was definitely a risk taker. My mother kept my brother and I as far away from him and his family as possible growing up. Mike's not a horrible guy. He was not socialized, like ever. They lived out in the country. They'd take a bus to school, take a bus back. They didn't go anywhere. And when they came back to uh, Indiana and Illinois, same thing, out in the country, no socializing. I mean, that kid couldn't wait to get out of his parents' house, but for whatever reason, couldn't get out of the grasp. Roy got along with his cousin Mike well enough as kids, and then, you know, life kind of moved on, as it does for a lot of people. Roy moved away and saw his cousin less and less and less. But Mike remained in Crawfordsville. I believe he went to a college about 10 years ago. He was working for Xerox. After that, I know he's going up to uh, making trips up to Canada. He'd be gone for six or eight weeks and back home for a week laying fiber optic cable. Roy would go on to hit his personal milestones. And around the early 2000s, he got married. And so did his cousin, Mike. And Mike married a woman in her mid-20s, and her name was Hope Hamilton. At some point, Hope and Mike moved to Crawfordsville, Indiana. And over the next several years, they had two kids together, a boy and a girl. And we don't know much about Mike and Hope's relationship. And Roy didn't know Hope super well. But as far as what he could recall about meeting her at family gatherings, she seemed lovely. Hope I've met one time. I don't know her well enough to say anything other than what impressions I had from the first time I met her. I mean, she seemed like a really sweet girl. The years passed and the two cousins continued their lives that were going in separate directions. And by mid-2020, Roy was living in Denver, Colorado. And he hadn't heard anything about how Mike and Hope were doing and hadn't seen them for a while. He knew Mike and Hope's daughter had had a baby when she was still in her teens, and Mike was working in a nearby city of Lebanon. But on August 20th, Roy got a phone call, and it was from a detective. And naturally, Roy was really shocked to be hearing from this police officer, and they had something cryptic to say to him. I got a phone call, and they were being very nonspecific, and I said, look, man, and I said, I I know that you're not supposed to tell me someone died over the phone. That's typically what this means when you're being cryptic. So he says, let me call you back. And and he calls me back from his personal cell phone. And he told me that uh, Hope had passed away and didn't give me any details beyond that. And I had to think about it for a minute because, like I said, I'd only seen Hope once and it took a minute to click. I just remember I was just dumbfounded when I I was on the phone. I was just like, wow, okay. So obviously with this news, Roy was thrust into a world of shock and confusion. So this isn't where the calls ended either. He got another one, this time from a different cousin who told Roy that he was on the way to the morgue to identify not only Hope's body, but her head. It turns out that Hope had been decapitated. Who the hell does that? He's still a mess over this. Okay, what the fuck is going on? What is happening? How did this happen and when? To answer all these questions, you know the drill. We got to go back. Hope Ann Hamilton was born on November 20th of 1975 to her parents, Terry and Carol. Around 1993, Hope graduated from Cole City High School in Illinois and married Michael Dale Parks around seven or so years later. By 2020, Hope was working for the publisher Random House in Crawfordsville. She had two grandkids by this stage who she loved more than anything in the world. There was even a homemade swing set at the park's home where they could play. There's not many pictures of Hope publicly available, but she very much sounds like a warm and loving mother and grandmother. 
There's not much public information about Hope's daily routine or whether she was working full-time at that stage. But what we do know is that on Tuesday, August 18th, Mike couldn't get a hold of his wife. And as the hours passed, he noticed that Hope was missing. Perhaps he hoped that she would return home. But we don't know whether Hope was expected at work, and if so, whether any of her coworkers noticed that she hadn't turned up. And after two days, Mike went to the police on August 20th to officially report Hope missing. When he got there, he told them he'd repeatedly attempted to contact her by phone, but there was no answer. When police interviewed Mike, he said that Hope had disappeared after they got into an argument at the house. He stated that she threw her wedding ring and keys at him before getting into a white Honda with someone Mike didn't know and taking off. And officers asked Mike if they could conduct a routine search of his house, and he agreed. Meanwhile, on the other side of the town that very same morning, a horrific discovery had already been made. Just after 4 a.m., a 911 call had come in. Just over three miles from the park's home, situated on the 1,000 block of South Elm Street, a headless corpse was found hanging over the railing on the east side of Sugar Creek Bridge on County Road 225 West. It's believed the body was placed on the bridge sometime between 1 and 4 a.m., but no one had seen anything to be able to confirm the exact time, and no one could initially identify the victim. But more to the point, who would do something so awful as to decapitate someone and dispose of their body in such a public way? When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. 
It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. On August 20th of 2020, a horrifying discovery was made on a Crawfordsville, Indiana bridge, the headless body of a woman. Hours after the discovery was made, a concerned man went to the police station to report his wife missing. That man was Michael Parks, and he was reporting his wife, Hope Parks, missing. After getting a description of Hope from Mike, police started connecting the dots. This woman, who had clearly become the victim of a homicide, maybe the very same woman Mike Parks was reporting missing. So naturally, they needed to speak to Mike about this. So they went to his home, and one thing led to another. A preliminary search was conducted. And during the search, officers found some disturbing evidence, both inside and outside the house. There were dried bloodstains on the gravel driveway and in the rear deck of the home. Inside the garage, there was more blood, including a bloody shoe print. In the backyard, police discovered a 22 shell casing next to a trail of blood droplets. Police obtained a search warrant for the rest of the home, and inside they found a 22 rifle and more ammunition, along with a man's shoe with a tread similar to the shoe print found in the garage. A safe in the bedroom contained a cell phone police believed belonged to Hope. But when they got to the cellar, nothing could have prepared them for what they found next. Buried in a hole under the floor was Hope's severed head. Hope's body was identified through fingerprints, but her head required separate identification. Dental records helped, but when Roy got a call telling him he and his cousin Adam might have to ID Hope's head, he was just completely speechless. He was caught completely off guard with this entire situation. So to make things even worse... Roy learned that the cops didn't believe that Hope had been targeted by a random killer. Roy's cousin Adam, who was also on his way to maybe help identify Hope, told him that law enforcement was looking squarely at their cousin Mike for Hope's murder. He had already identified her head, and we're just both bewildered by this because, I mean, who, who in a million years would have ever thought that someone in our family, but I get it, it happens, everyone Everyone's capable. It was just getting over the uh, initial shock of it. Now, this might sound like a strange thing to say, but while Roy was both appalled and sickened, he also wasn't that surprised. Because as it turns out, and this is not being an apologist in any way at all, but Mike was the product of an extremely violent home. And we all know, we're all, you know, we all listen to true crime. Domestic violence often cycles through the generations. 
His dad used to beat the snot out of him, used to beat the snot out of his wife, his daughter. I mean, so many allegations growing up as to the abuse that they went through. I've seen bruises on both of them growing up. I thought I had it bad. You know, I mean, you know, back in the day when parents actually spanked you, I mean, I always thought I had it bad, but nothing compared to these two. So let's just pause here for a minute to touch on the concept of schemas like we talked about in the beginning and how this relates to the abuse that Mike experienced when he was a child. So in the U.S. alone, according to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, more than two-thirds of children have experienced some form of trauma. And we know that untreated childhood trauma can have lifelong impacts on adult behavior and core beliefs. It can also affect the way you subconsciously form attachment in your adult relationships and develop resilience, as well as a sense of emotional security and safety. From the time Mike and Hope started dating, roughly 20 years before Hope's murder and all throughout their relationship, police were often called to the home over reports of domestic violence. On one occasion back in Illinois, Mike was convicted of domestic battery for assaulting Hope. Several other charges of domestic battery had been made against him over the years, but they were all eventually dropped. Now, having said all of that, we also know for a fact that surviving childhood trauma and having attachment issues does not in itself cause someone to go on and become an abuser or a murderer themselves, and it is not an excuse for those who do. Regardless of background, we're all accountable for how we choose to behave, how we choose to heal, and our self-awareness. If we're not to have any sort of personal growth or insight into our own behavior, we need to constantly work on questioning our beliefs and views of the world, even when that's uncomfortable for us. In terms of the police investigation, Roy felt selfish, but he was beyond relieved that he didn't have to go through the unimaginable task of identifying Hope's head. And I don't blame him. This is the stuff that traumatizes even the most seasoned of officers. So I can't imagine having to do that for a stranger, let alone somebody in your own family. It is absolutely terrifying. And Roy, of course, was primarily concerned about Mike's kids and how this was affecting all of them. Meanwhile, at the autopsy, the medical examiner determined that Hope had died from a gunshot wound to the back of the head. She'd also suffered blunt force trauma to her chest and extremities. Thankfully, the decapitation had been a post-mortem. And when police searched the park's home for a second time the following day, they found a blue tarp with stains that were consistent with blood. In the hole where Hope's head had been buried, police also found hair and plastic bags containing rags and other cleanup sort of materials. And in the search of Mike's internet history, he'd been browsing for something called bottle silencers for firearms. Neighbors, when they heard what happened, were understandably aghast. One told a CW affiliate station that in the days before Hope's body was discovered, his wife was out on their porch and she heard a woman screaming, get off of me, please let me go. Another neighbor across the street heard the same exact thing, but didn't hear any gunshots. And this makes sense if Hope was shot by a gun with a silencer that was attached to it. So the police started to form a theory about what happened. The story the evidence told was that sometime between August 18th and 20th, Mike shot Hope in their kitchen. He then decapitated her using the saw and buried her head in the cellar before wrapping her body in the tarp and driving it to Sugar Creek Bridge, where he dumped her over the railing in the early hours of August 20th. After heading to work a few hours later, Mike reported Hope missing to the police around 8 a.m. that morning. Basically, they had a, a fight that night. She walks away. He leveled a 22 rifle at the back of her head and shot her. 
I believe he shot her multiple times from what the detective had said, but shot her in the back of the head, which was the fatal one. And he took her down into the basement and dismembered her, buried the head in the cellar, wrapped her body in a tarp, put it in his truck and took it to a bridge. Fortunately for Mike and Hope's kids, they weren't home when their dad callously murdered their mom. On August 24th, Mike was charged with Hope's murder. The next day, he pleaded not guilty and was held without bond, but the plea meant that Hope's heartbroken family would have to go through the anguish and trauma of a trial. If convicted, Mike was facing a minimum sentence of 45 years and a maximum of 65, as well as a $10,000 fine and an additional 5 to 20 years for using a firearm. And what's unsettling about Mike's booking photo is that he just looks completely blank. He just looks like a normal middle-aged dad who had a camera that caught him by surprise. It's really kind of spooky. Yeah. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. In late August of 2020, 44-year-old Michael Parks was charged with murdering his 44-year-old wife, Hope, and was awaiting trial. Now, you might think that the defense strategy in a case like this would focus on something like pleading insanity or pleading guilty to spare his family a trial, right? Well, that's not exactly what happened. If you can believe this, his plan was actually to blame his own son for the murder, who was in his 20s. And here's Roy again to comment on that. It had been eight or nine months into this and, you know, no word, no nothing. And I had called my cousin and asked her, I said, hey, so what's the skinny on this? What's going on? And she says, his attorney says we can't talk about it. And I was like, it's not going to be something shady, is it? I said, I'm not trying to infer that, you know, you guys are shady. I'm just saying, you know, I mean, it was his rifle that did the do, you know, I mean, it's not like he can put that on someone else. I don't even know how someone could do something so disgusting. So first, Mike steals the life of the mother of his children, mutilates her post-mortem, and then points the finger at his grieving son to absolve himself of responsibility. And to top it all off, the older members of Mike's family asked Roy to help cover the legal costs. And Roy basically told them to suck it. His family asked me for money for his legal fund. I said, you guys are on crack. I said, you know, if he did it, and we all know he did it, you know, I mean, they found her head in his cellar. They found blood all over the backyard and the deck and and, and the uh, driveway. I mean, it was his rifle, the ballistics matched. 
why, why in the F is he accusing his kid of this? I mean, man up and take responsibility. And then I'll help you out with money for a good attorney who can at least spare you the death penalty. You know what I mean? But, you know, man up first. I, I, I'm not interested. I said he had an opportunity to walk away. You know, there's divorce. Sure, it might cost you money over the next few decades. So what? And I said, this is deplorable. And until he does the right thing, I'm not interested. Don't call me again. So naturally, Roy was disgusted and upset and, you know, sad about these events that had occurred in his cousin's family. But he still had this sort of very human curiosity about how things could have gotten to such an untenable point between Mike and Hope. How could Mike do something like this? And deep down, Roy, you know, for better or for worse, we have compassion for the people in our families, even when they do evil, disgusting, awful things. And that's how Roy felt. He had some compassion for his cousin. And after much back and forth, Roy actually decided to go visit his cousin, Mike, in jail. He's my cousin. I've known him for 40 years, you know. I didn't really go there to really make him feel better so much as I was just curious, you know, has anything changed? I mean, am I looking at a whack job? I was just more curious than anything. But also, as much as I don't feel he deserves it, I don't think anyone should be, you know, put away 23 hours a day with zero contact with anyone. And, and that's exactly what his situation was. No visitors, no nothing. I mean, it, it, not even his dad had come to visit him up to that point. His demeanor was no different than any other time I've ever seen him. He was just quiet, confident, sure of himself, and, and you know, as if he did nothing wrong. Honestly, I, I just wanted it to be two cousins talking, two friends talking. That's it. I didn't think I was ever going to get any answers out of him as to why he did what he did or what was going through his mind. But he hadn't had a single visitor from the time that he was arrested you know, other than his attorney. I sat with him for a couple hours. I was still so stunned by the whole situation. You know, he can tell me why. It's not going to make sense. Roy had so many burning questions. What could have been going on in Mike's head? And there are other options for ending a marriage that don't involve murdering and mutilating your spouse. But remember, when we talked about this in the beginning of the episode, divorce was not an option in this family. And in some way, this could have been a throwback to the childhood abuse that Mike suffered and his father's uncompromising rules. He'd rather kill his wife than defy his father. No one really sees that coming, you know? No no one really envisions that. I found out from him, you know, based on his parents, that divorce isn't an option. And, and I mean, I disagree wholeheartedly. But honestly... I don't know what I wanted out of the visit. I don't know what I expected. I don't really have an answer. It just doesn't compute. It's the way he did what he did when he had so many other options. And that's all I asked him was, you had so many other options, you could have just walked away. And I said, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't make a damn what your, what your dad or your mom thinks. Why he did it, I, I have no clue. I mean, I, I can't envision being that ruthless to someone. I said, you robbed Hope's family, you robbed Hope, you robbed everyone because you were too chicken shit to get a divorce. The only thing he wanted me to do was make sure his kids were okay going forward. I said, you made a mistake. You made a bad one, very bad error in judgment. You robbed them of their mom, you robbed them of yourself. Anytime they want to see you, it's going to be between glass. 
Thankfully for Roy and the rest of the family and Hope's loved ones, Mike ended up reevaluating his decision to take this to trial and reevaluating this decision to blame his son for his wife Hope's murder. So in March of 2022, while awaiting trial, he actually aborted this entire plan and he decided to take a plea deal, which was a decent, the most decent thing that could be done in a situation like this. The aggravating factors in all of this were the premeditation aspect of this murder, obviously the mutilation of Hope and disposing of her body in such a disrespectful and public way. And here's the other thing. Mike didn't have a history of mental illness. He didn't have a history of drug abuse. It would be hard to reach for sort of a mitigating factor here to explain how this happened. And on May 6th, he was sentenced to 50 years in prison. And under his plea agreement, Mike admitted to killing Hope. He also has to serve his entire sentence, and he isn't eligible for parole, and he waived his rights to any subsequent possible appeals. So if Mike doesn't die in prison... He'll be 94 years old when he's released. It's basically a life sentence. I mean, you just don't get away with it. I do remember saying this. If you just tell him what you did, just honestly, lose the attorney. Tell him, hey, I did this. And beg for mercy. You might get it. I said, but if you take this all the way to the, the, the finish line, they're going to crucify you. This attorney had uh, asked me, you know, Hey, t- tell me about his uh, life growing up. I said, everything he tells you, I'll back up. I said, his dad was a bastard. His mom was of no use. And I said, you know, we expect our moms to be moms. We expect them to be there emotionally for you. She was too terrified to be there emotionally for him or uh, his sister. And I said, so the family dynamic, I said, I put about 45% of this on the family dynamic, 55% on Mike because he had the opportunity to walk away. Mike's parents are still together. As we all know, it can be impossible to escape an abusive relationship, let alone one you've been in for years. But from Roy's perspective, it sounds like Mike's dad is still a control freak who constantly has his wife walking on eggshells. Every time you go in the room, she doesn't say a word. I don't even know what to say about that relationship. She is so subservient to him. And she doesn't have her own life. She doesn't have her own friends. She can't go out and do whatever she wants to do without tagging him along. And if he says, no, you can't go, she doesn't go. So one upside or a silver lining we can try to mine here is that despite growing up in the same household as Mike, Mike's sister has taken a completely different path than her brother. She works in nursing. She cared for the grandmother at the end stages of her life. And despite not being nurtured properly as a child, has now become a nurturer herself, dedicating her life to showing compassion and care for others. Like we see with many brutal cases, the ripple effect of Hope's murder continues to affect the family on both sides to this day. I think about it a lot, really. Every time I think of my cousin up in uh, Chicago, I think of, you know, he had to go and identify that head. I think of how that just destroyed him. It pisses me off. No one should do something that would require another relative to go and clean up your friggin' mess or go identify your wife because you were such a douchebag that you took her out over a disagreement because you're too chicken shit to divorce. There's no question that this case is just extremely tragic all around. And we can't underestimate how powerful our caregivers' influences can be on us as kids. 
They're the ones who provide us with the psychological template of how to connect with others in our relationships. And this is a template we need desperately throughout our lives. So if children grow up in an abusive environment where they don't feel safe, the warped beliefs they develop about the world can lead them to do things as adults that most of us would never dream of. This is really important. People who are parents, who are friends with parents, who are children, I mean, anyone listening has been born somehow. These are all lessons and ideologies we can pass around and try to heal amongst ourselves. This message that Mike got from his dad, loud and clear, right? Divorce was not an option. And that's something he really believed. He shuddered in fear with this idea that his dad would be disappointed in him if he got a divorce. And this wasn't just, you know, a belief about his dad. This is an idea that Mike told himself, a genuine belief. The messaging was so strong for him that for whatever reason, he chose to ignore the fact that as adults, we have power over our choices. Instead of approaching problems in his marriage by discussing it with Hope, an attorney or someone impartial, Mike took this to an extreme. He used his beliefs as an excuse to exercise the ultimate form of control in the absolute worst way possible. And ruining his life, as well as those of everyone in his family and everyone around him. And you know what? That's something that he's got to live with. huge thank you to Roy for being our first degree guest for this episode. If you are listening and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Uh, join our Patreon. We have a lot new bonus content over there and stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed. Uh, yeah, our Patreon, four more episodes a month. Four like, episodes that is a month. Sweetest deal that you could ever come across. <laughs> Sweet deals. And remember... Only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Shout out to Jared Monica for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by the fabulous Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are the Associated Press, Indianapolis Star, Fox 59, WTHR, WRTV, Indiana infamy.com crawfordsfield journal review fox 23 wlfi the national library of medicine thoughtco.com psychology today bridges to recovery psych central and loveisrespect.org and as always our first read guest is always our largest source this is a big year the ohio lottery's golden anniversary 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.